1929, John Jacob Raskob, along with a few others, formed Empire State Incorporated. And what they desire, to build the world's first 100-plus story building. And that's exactly what they did. So plans were studied. Materials were organized. Hungry workers were hired. And on March 17, 1930, the construction project began for the Empire State Building. And so how does it all begin? Well, they place a cornerstone firmly rooted, which is essential because that one stone ensures the stability of the entire structure. And with that, the race to compete and complete the Empire State Building began. And what a race it certainly was. The men worked countless hours, seven million man hours to be exact. In fact, they were working so quickly that the framework for the building rose at a rate of four and a half stories per week. That's absolutely amazing, isn't it? And so on March 31st, 1931, they reaped the reward of their labors. They made the most glamorous and captivating skyscraper in all of Manhattan. The beauty of the Empire State Building was breathtaking. And it is breathtaking. I mean, just picture the Empire State Building for a moment. What happens when the sun hits that building? It shines brighter than all other buildings that it towers over. Each ray of light bursting in radiant splendor, blinding eyes, and lighting up alleyways. But why am I telling you all about the Empire State Building? I mean, how does the Empire State Building in Manhattan compare to the wilderness that we see in Exodus? Well, in the wilderness, the Lord continues to deliver his people and then organizes them for their good and his renown. Moses can't do it. Joshua certainly can't do it. No, this is a work of God. And now, right now in this moment of time, God is building his church. He's preparing his people. The Lord Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He is the banner of his church. And so the organizing of the Empire State Building is like children making mud pies in sewage pits compared to the beauty of what God has fashioned through the work of Christ. God has organized his church. He has placed the Lord Jesus as author and foundation. And now, right now, he continues to build his church. And it is glorious. A people diverse and yet unified to be set apart for our good and for God's glory. And so with that in mind, turn with me this morning to Exodus chapter 17. And if you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs, you can find our passage on page 59. And while you're turned there, feel free to look at your outline. And you'll notice that we have three points this morning. One, God's saving work. Two, God's organizing work. And three, God's ongoing work. Now, it's crucial to understand the context that's preceding Exodus 17, 8 through 16. Just think back to last week's sermon. God tested his people in the wilderness. Chapter 15, we're told of the, the water of Marah, which was bitter. Chapter 16, manna fell from heaven and provided for the people for 40 years. And then chapter 17, water flows from a rock 
in the middle of a desert. But notice how the people of Israel respond to what God has done. They say in verse 7, Is the Lord among us or not? God's certainly not silent, is he? No, look what he says. He's going to deliver his people. It's exactly what we're going to see in verses 8 through 16. The Lord is saving his people. He's working in them. And we're going to see this specifically of how he's delivering and saving a whole radical group of people. We're going to see two Gentile nations, Amalek and Jethro, who respond to God's saving work quite differently. So A, Amalek rejects God. So first, let's read Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now right off the bat, we clearly see that Amalek's rejecting God. Verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So the people of God are in Rephidim. The Amalekites come. They're fighting against this weary people. But in Deuteronomy, Moses gives us additional information about this account. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 27, 28 says this. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you. And catch this, and he did not fear God. So Amalek doesn't fear the Lord. He attacks Israel in their weakness, an unprovoked attack against God's elect. But we shouldn't be expecting anything else from this people, from the Amalekites, should we? Because enmity always exists between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. I mean, you may remember the Amalekites are the offspring of Esau, the brother of Jacob. Genesis 36, 12 tells us Timae was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. So Amalek is in the line of Esau. He's a seed of the serpent. So we shouldn't be surprised at all that he's fighting against God's people. So Israel must actively fight. And so we have Joshua come on in, the future leader of the people, who's sent to gather able-bodied men to fight on the front lines of the attack. All those who are able. But where's Moses? Verse 9. Tomorrow 
I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Moses, Aaron, and Hur, they stand up on this hillside. Moses raises up his hands in the air, right? And listen to what verse 11 tells us. Whenever Moses held up his hands, what happened? Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hands, Amalek prevailed. Now let me ask you a question really quick. Are Moses' hands so powerful that they dictate the outcome of the fight? Is Moses praying so hard with his hand in the air that he's actively changing the outcome of the battle? No, that's not what's happening. Verse 9 is very helpful. Moses declares that he will stand on the top of the hill with what? With the staff of God in his hand. So it's not about the worth of Moses' power, is it? No, verse 12 is super clear. Moses' hands grew weary. He's a man, but Moses holds the staff of God. That's where the power is. You see, he went to the hillside, raised his staff, which is a symbol of God's presence, God's promises, and God's power. So this staff displays the power that has been at the very forefront of what we've seen throughout the first 15 chapters of the book of Exodus. Just listen to Exodus chapter 4, 17. The Lord commands Moses, take in your hand, what? This staff with which you, will, you shall do the signs. So God's power is displayed through Moses' staff. It's not because of Moses. And so with the help of her and Aaron, Moses' hands remain in the air, right? They're stuffing stones underneath them. They're putting them up over top of them, make them nice and comfy to keep those hands up. They're holding those hands high in the air so the staff's lifted up on high. God's power not God's, not man's hands, is what overmatches the plans of the seeds of the serpent, the Amalekites. And so with this glorious deliverance is a response. God's victory is remembered. Just listen to verse 14, verses 14 through 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, notice, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will war with Amalek from generation to generation. So Yahweh gives a written reminder that looks forward to the promised land and actually instructs Moses as to what to call this altar. Yahweh is my banner. That's what he calls it. Now I want to make sure we understand the significance of this idea. Because a banner or signal pole would be held up in the line of battle as a marker to rally around during a battle. So Yahweh is to be looked at and treasured as the warrior, the provider, the deliverer of his people. He is the marker. He is the banner of his people. And that's exactly what we see throughout the entire Bible pertaining to this idea of the banner. In fact, the next place that this word is used is in Numbers 21. You may remember that the Israelites are still in the wilderness at this time, but they're beyond Mount Sinai. And what are they doing? Classic Israel. They're grumbling. So the Lord sends fiery serpents into the wilderness, and many are bitten and die. 
But Moses pleads to God on behalf of the people. And what does the Lord do? Numbers 21.8 tells us that he commands Moses to make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole or a banner, same word, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So the people who've been bitten by, bitten, look by faith to the serpent who's high and lifted up and they are saved from death and judgment. Now, awesome story. We love that narrative, but it pales in comparison to its fulfillment because Jesus is the fulfillment of the fiery serpent set on the pole, the fiery serpent set on that banner. Now, how do we know that? I'm not making it up, I promise. I would never do that, right? But John 3 is clear. Jesus speaks with Nicodemus, and he uses Numbers 21 to actually display that he is the way of eternal life. Listen to John 3, 14 through 15. The Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus is the banner that's lifted up so that Jews and Gentiles alike are offered salvation by looking nowhere else but to Jesus. Nowhere else. So they look at the one who lived the life we could never live, who died the death that we most certainly deserve to die and was raised as a banner for his people. The church that he conquers sin, death, and the devil. So it's clear that Amalek rejects God. How about you? Have you rejected the Lord? Even as you sit here and hear of God's wondrous deliverance, have you continued to place your trust in other things rather than the Lord Jesus who's able to save your soul for all of eternity? So I appeal to you this morning, if you are actively rejecting the Lord, the end's gonna be no different than what's promised to the Amalekites in Exodus 17, 16, right? It says Yahweh will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So with the enemy's defeat here comes the promise from God himself that constant enmity leads to future destruction. So let me be very clear. Please listen. There's an everlasting judgment that's coming. It's certain. It's separation from God for all of eternity. No joy, no peace. There's damnation. But I just don't want you to see only the horror of judgment this morning, but I want us to see the beauty of this God. Look up and see the beauty of the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus, who has the power to save you for all of eternity. Trust in the one who is the banner, who offers salvation to you this morning. In fact, not only this morning, this moment. So trust him. So Amalek, a Gentile, he rejects Yahweh. And so the Lord continues to deliver. And God's people are saved, not because of their own abilities, but because Yahweh is their banner. 
And so now, in contrast to Amalek's rejection of God, what we see is in chapter 18, 1 through 12, it actually highlights another Gentile from a foreign, foreign nation who actually embraces God. Embraces God as his banner. So let's look together at B, Jethro embraces God. But before I read it, I want us to see Something very helpful to our text this morning. Exodus 18 is, in fact, the hinge to the entire book of Exodus. So in Exodus 18, 1 through 12, we see Moses is actually displaying a looking back feature of the book. He's looking back at the wondrous work God has done in saving his people. But then when we get to verses 13 through 27, he's using the rest of the book to point us forward to what God is going to do to sanctify his people. And so how does he do that? By giving them the law. So with that said, let's read Moses' proclamation to his father-in-law, Jethro, starting in 18, verses 1 through 12. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home. Along with her two sons, the name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eleazar, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two with her sons, and two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. So we have a family reunion. Jethro has traveled with Zipporah and Moses' two sons, Gershom and Eleazar. Now notice their names reflect the work that God has done as we've seen in chapters 1 through 15. And then Moses and Jethro have this little powwow, don't they? Yeah, they check up on how things have been going. How are the kids doing? How's Zipporah doing? Is she doing well? I hope so. And then Moses switches gears in this conversation. What does Moses say? Verse 8. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that Yahweh had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way. How the Lord had delivered them. So Moses proclaims to Jethro, a Gentile, God's great work of redemption. And notice Jethro's response. Verse 9. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. So Jethro rejoices. Why? Because the Lord delivered all. All, every single one of them from the Egyptians. And so Jethro's response is right. And how do we know this to be true? Because his response, Jethro's response, leads to a true confession of who Yahweh is. In fact, 
This polygamous shepherd answers the very question that Pharaoh once asked Moses. Exodus 5.2, Pharaoh speaking with Moses, and Pharaoh states, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Who's Yahweh? Now listen to the true confession that this Gentile makes. Verse 10, Jethro said, Blessed be Yahweh, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. What a confession that is. Because Jethro not only acknowledges the awesome work that God has done, but verse 11 gives us the climax of the entire section. That he truly is Lord and there is no other. Right? Verse 11 says, Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods. So Jethro denounces all false gods in the wake of the mighty majesty of Yahweh. Jethro, once a pagan, responds rightly to the proclamation of God's deliverance, and he puts his faith and trust in the Lord in place of every other false god. Now notice how drastic a contrast this text just gives us. Because it's purposeful. It's, there's a point to it. Jethro embraces God where Amalek rejected him. And so this confession from Jethro, a Gentile, is crucial to our understanding of the book of Exodus and God's purpose for the world, even now. W. Ross Blackburn says this, this confession serves as a specific fulfillment of the Lord's primary goal in Exodus 1 through 15. That other nations would come to know Yahweh's supremacy. So Yahweh is not only displaying his saving work for his specific people, Israel, but it's clear that the Lord has made a way to save sinners both near and far, Jews and Gentiles alike. How glorious is that? And so what we see with Jethro's confession, it actually leads to worship which is exactly what we see in verse 12. Moses, Jethro, Aaron, all the elders, they come together and they sacrifice to the Lord and they enjoy a meal together. Notice this, it's God's manna that they enjoy. They enjoy God's provision of food in the wilderness as they rejoice in God's provision of salvation even to a Gentile. Unbelievable. What a beautiful picture, is it not? I mean, I can't help but think of my own salvation in light of the section. Just think of the great deliverance that we, as God's people, have been rescued from. We've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. He rescued his bride from spiritual bondage and sin. We were dead men and women before the king. 
And what did the Lord do? He sent his precious son to pull our dead hearts from the rubble and placed us in the robes of his own righteousness. So we, as the people of God, must never forget what God has done. We must never forget, but we are called to remember and to proclaim. And so how are we doing with that? Are we those who remember what God has done and proclaim who he is and his sufficiency? So what does that look like? Are you eager to memorize scripture that displays the glory of the gospel, to ponder, to read of the good work God has done? And so what follows from those who remember? It's a heart that overflows with a burden to proclaim what God has done through Christ. So if we're not joyfully proclaiming what God has done, then our hearts are not overwhelmed by what God has done through Christ. And so I pray that we would be a church absolutely overwhelmed by God's grace and joyfully proclaiming the work that God has accomplished through his son on our behalf. What an opportunity. So Amalek rejects God, right? That is clear from the first section. And then we see that Jethro embraces God. But Israel, they've not yet arrived in the promised land, have they? No, so as the banner of his people, what does God do here? He organizes them. Why? Why is he going to organize this, this structure? So that they would be prepared for the giving of the law. So that they might walk with eyes fixed on their banner in holiness. And that's exactly what we see in Exodus 18, 13 through 27. God organizes those he saves in such a way that they would embody the very law that they're given to govern and to be set apart from the rest of the world. And so we're going to see this in two, God's organizing work. So Moses' mediation in verses 13 through 18. So let's pick up in Exodus 18 and read, starting in verses 13 through 18. The next day Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now what's going on here? Clearly, Moses is attempting to handle the disputes of two million people. But why is he handling this all on his own? Well, remember that they've just become a nation. God's just pulled them out of Egypt. So they're clearly experiencing major growing pains. And Jethro immediately notices the holes the size of Mesopotamia in this government structure. 
Just look at Jethro's assessment in verses 17 through 18. He says to Moses, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now, don't you just love it when a family member or your own father-in-law comes along, shows up on the scene for a cup of coffee, and then just starts poking at the way you run your life, let alone running an entire nation? But seriously, you have a Gentile now brought into the covenant community who recognizes Moses can't do it on his own. He's unable. Moses is just a man. He needs help. One man can't possibly judge every single dispute of two million people. So we've got a growing nation here. Things are progressing. God's doing a good work amongst his people, but changes need to be made. Now just pause with me for a moment to think about where we have been, right? We started off the book of Exodus and there were 70 people to Israel's name. What has God done? God has progressively grown, multiplied his people. Now we've got 400 years and change later, 2 million people are drawn out. Which is why we hear B, Jethro's recommendation. Moses needs some help. So let's read in verses 19 through 23 to hear of Jethro's recommendation to Moses. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. Now, obviously, Jethro recommend, recommends how to represent people before the Lord. And then he shows the standard for handling each dispute under God's instruction, under God's commands. But he also gives Moses the purpose, doesn't he? Look at verse 20. He says, So that they may know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. So just see it. It's for their good. It's for all two million of their good, that they will walk in God's ways as God's people. You see, God's in the process here of uniting a people for his own possession, to be set apart from everything they're going to see in the promised land. They're to be holy as God is holy. But Jethro doesn't stop there, does he? No, he tells Moses exactly the types of men that should be placed in authority over the people. Verse 21 says, Look for able men from all the people, men who feared God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. So you have godly leaders, godly men who have been called out Men of integrity who judge well. They consider the way that the people of God must walk. So once again, let's see it. Men who are placed in authority for the good of God's people. To deal well with disputes that come up. 
So what's the purpose of Jethro's recommendations? Verse 23. If statement here, I love it. If you do this, if you follow the recommendation I have given, then God will direct you. You will be able to endure. And all these people also will go to their place in peace. So this organizing work is a group effort, isn't it? You've got two million people with a vision to walk in God's way under God's direction, founded on God's law, carried out by men governed by God's word, with the goal of living radically set apart from all other nations in the entire world. For what purpose? For their good and for the fame of God's name. So let's just be very clear. The goal here is that the nation of Israel would be organized in such a way that they would judge disputes under the banner of God's law for the sake of being a united people who are servant-hearted and have a desire, a love, a passion for the good of one another. Now that's some great advice from father-in-law, father-in-law Jethro, isn't it? Yes, it is. And so what is Moses' response to Jethro's recommendation? He obeys. Verse 24 tells us, Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. And that's exactly what happened. They followed the instructions of Jethro and the disputes were handled accordingly. Two million people split up, divided, disputes, heard, and met. So God's saving work was accomplished so that they would know that the Lord is their banner. And he is. It's abundantly clear. And that's displayed as God organizes a diverse and unified people, Jews and Gentiles alike, that they would embody the law to govern faithfully and set them apart for their good and for God's glory. Now, where do we go from here? How do we actually begin to make sense of how this applies to the people of God? What can we possibly learn from Exodus 18 concerning how God saves and organizes his people as they are prepared for the giving of the law? Well, we serve a God who is the same yesterday and today and forever. He's always been in the business of saving and organizing a people for his grand purposes. And so for us to get this vision of how God is working right now, continuously organizing his church, we need to go to the New Testament. And so let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. If you turn there with me, Ephesians chapter 2. And we are going to look and see the beauty of God's ongoing work among his people in the church. We are organized and positioned purposefully. And so we've got to look at the nature of, of the church and the foundation of the church. So Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. It says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, 
in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, in this passage, Paul's speaking directly to Gentile believers, those who have been saved, just as we saw with Jethro thousands of years earlier. So what's the ongoing organizing work that God has established? Well, look at verse 19. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. You are members of one household. You got Gentiles brought into the fold, no longer as aliens, no longer as strangers, but fellow members of the one household. There ain't a bunch of different households. There is one household of God, which displays how God has organized so beautifully a radically diverse people, right? You have one single people with one common bond, the banner of Christ the chief cornerstone. So Gentiles and Jews brought together, unified, and organized in a place where neither of them ever deserve to reside. They are placed together in God's holy temple. I mean, look at verse 21. In whom the whole structure, being joined together, it does what? The structure grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So just hear the imagery. Individual stones making up one solidified, glorious edifice for God's glorious purposes. So what's my point? Well, the church is certainly God's glorious design. An organized entity, an entire people who are bound and growing together into a perfected people. And it's absolutely glorious. And so this very diverse and yet unified group has been organized specifically with what? With leaders. It's not like we're just doing whatever we want in this place. No, we've got elders, we have deacons, we have men, women, young and old to be used with their special and unique gifts to mobilize, embolden, and edify God's people. You see, this is where we see the beauty of the church, where we see the beauty of the organizing work that God is continuing to do even now among us. I mean, just think about this for a moment. Where on earth do we see radically different people who love, sacrifice, teach, admonish one another? It's absolutely incredible. And this is not man's doing. No, this is God's invention. This is what God has done. You don't believe me? You turn on your TV right now and you look at what's going on in the world and what do we see going on in Ukraine? Yes, horrific things, but then we see the church standing firm, holistically loving, caring for medical needs, but then also what? Having opportunities to proclaim the glory of the gospel. That's a radically different people, diverse, clearly, but unified under one desire, that Christ would be made known. That is the beauty 
of the church. That's something that they and many cannot get their heads around, that God's people are spurred on by the Spirit of God to do a work that only happens inside the church. Sacrificial love without bounds. That's the work of God, and it is glorious. Right, so we actively and we collectively love and serve those in the church and in the world as the people of God. But we're not standing on our own accomplishments, are we? No, we stand on the foundation of the cornerstone, the banner of his church. We stand on the Lord Jesus. Ephesians 2.20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, the enduring stabilizer. So the church, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. He's our banner. So this is far more glorious and far more permanent than anything the Empire State Building could have ever crafted. We have an eternal architect. He saved us. He keeps us. He holds us fast. He emboldens us by faith to stir up one another to love and good deeds. That they would be sanctified holy on the last day. That we would be eternally happy in him forever. That is glorious news. But that's all well and good. God has saved and has organized his church, but what's our unique role right now? What are we to do? Well, as we are under the lordship of Christ in his church, we're to do a lot of things. But here are a few. We're to encourage. We're to reconcile with one another. We're to submit to one another. And we are to proclaim. So one, we encourage. Now that could take many forms, but we should, be, we should use our unique talents and gifts as very different people to do what? To encourage others. We should think of how we could be a blessing to others in our congregation, that they would be growing in godliness. Do whatever it takes to love and care and encourage one another. Number two, we reconcile with one another. We must work through disputes within this congregation. That wasn't just going on back in Moses' day. There are still disputes today, at least last time I checked, I think there were, right? Because we are a set-apart people who live in a special community with love, peace, and a heart to serve one another with joy. And so here is my question. When conflict and disputes arise in our church, do we look to reconcile differences? Are we quick to forgive? Are we quick to apologize when we have wronged? It's the mark of how glorious our church is, the organized people that God has positioned. Number three, we submit. Now here's a question, a question that I've been asking myself. Do we joyfully submit to the leaders of this church? as they are faithfully leading by example for the good of the community? Is that something that we do? Do we have difficulty submitting to others? Number four, 
Lastly, we proclaim. That's what the church does. So the church that God continues to build is one that proclaims the gospel that saves. You see, in the way we encourage, the way we reconcile, submit, and proclaim, it shines forth the beauty of what God has done in organizing this glorious structure. The unbelievable wisdom of God who has sovereignly established and organized a radically diverse people to be on mission. But why? What is the purpose? Ephesians chapter 3 10 through 11 is so helpful for us to see what God has done. He says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's a cosmic reality, ladies and gentlemen. He goes on, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, the cornerstone, our banner, realized. It's realized in him. I mean, how glorious is this? May we be a people who live gloriously different, absolutely set apart from the rest of the world according to the eternal purpose that God has organized from before time even began. That one day, his diverse, beautiful, and unified people would be holy as he is holy. And then we'd be glorified in his likeness, eternally happy in the banner of our souls. Let's pray. Father, we glory in the reality that you are building your church right now. That you have worked in such a way in the hearts and minds of a diverse and yet unified people that we'd be stirred up to love and good deeds, that we would be set apart from the world, that we would be holy, that one day we would be truly and entirely, eternally happy in Christ alone. Lord, we do glory in the fact that the Lord Jesus is our banner. We pray that we would treasure him with all that we are. Lord, we thank you that you have been doing a marvelous work amongst your people, not only in the Old Testament, but we even see you in the ongoing work of organizing your church for your glorious purposes. We pray all of this, that you would be conforming us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.